This episode is one of our favorite episodes so far. Everyone is on joy their summer break, and so is Friends Like Us. But instead of leaving you without an episode, I thought it would be nice to celebrate one of our favorite episodes so far of 2023 with Andrea Dizel and Jean Sparrow. It's all about advocacy. It's a great episode that, again, if you didn't listen to, here's your chance and share it with others. Enjoy your summer. Welcome back to Friends Like Us. Marina Franklin here, your host. This week on Friends, I have a new friend for you, Andrea Dazell, registered nurse, healthcare advocate, disability rights influencer, and most importantly, a strong survivor. At the early age of five, Andrea was diagnosed with transverse myelitis, an inflammation of the spinal cord that causes pain, muscle weakness, and paralysis, and was using a wheelchair full-time by age 12. Although this diagnosis was very critical, Andrea let absolutely nothing get in the way of being all that she could be. I cannot wait for you to hear from Andrea on Friends Like Us. Also, welcome back. We love her, Jean Sparrow from Chicago. She is a seven-time Emmy-winning television host, radio personality on V103 Chicago, Saturdays, 6 a.m. to 12 p.m. And check out her podcast, Fearless Authenticity with Jean Sparrow. She's finishing her book, Fearless Authenticity, Insider Secrets to Lead Better, Sell More, and Speak Sensationally. Expected late 2024. So be on the lookout for Jean's book. I need to read more. Whether it's the larger corporate coffee companies or the small local coffee shop, it seems like the coffee choice we have today are over-roasted and bitter or under-roasted and sour. And to top it off, bad coffee can be <laughs> really expensive. At Mariposa Coffee, they believe you shouldn't need to add cream and sugar to enjoy your coffee. They have a unique roasting process, so their coffee is clean, smooth, fresh, and a tasty that you can drink black. I've had their coffee. I love their coffee. Every time you see me with a coffee mug, know it's their coffee. And at just $12 per pound, you'll have enough money left over to buy eggs or gas or maybe more coffee. They offer flavored coffees and decaf coffee if that's what you like. Shop online today at MariposaCoffeeCo.com and enter promo code FranklinFriends10. That's FranklinFriends10 to receive 10% off your first coffee order. That's MariposaCoffeeCo.com for smooth, enjoyable, and affordable coffee. I want to thank all of our listeners of Friends Like Us. Because of you, we make some pretty impressive lists. You can hear us on Google Podcasts Now, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts. Review and rate us on Apple Podcasts. That's important. Subscribe. Make sure you turn on the auto-download function of Friends Like Us on Apple Podcasts. You can email us at friendslikeuspodcast at gmail. Our Instagram is friendslikeuspodcast and Twitter is friendslikeus10. Become more than a friend. Leave us a tip or donation just go to our patreon page go to patreon backslash friends like us special shout out to our patreon friends it's because of you we keep going and now for our golden friends you have the option to watch our recordings live backstage yes every monday 1 p.m eastern standard time go to patreon backslash friends like us and be golden merch is available we have t-shirts hoodies coffee mugs face masks and tank tops all available go to marinafranklin.com weekly on my youtube channel i go live with my assistant evelyn frick and my wacky friend dave just how we give updates to the show we shout out fans who leave reviews 
and we have surprise guest friends from the podcast who stop by. And sometimes we offer free stuff, like tickets to comedy shows. With friends like us, it'll help you feel not so alone because more content is on the way. Tell a friend you know to check us out. Stay safe. Wash those dirty little hands. Wear a mask still. Just be nice. And Black Lives Matter. And welcome to Friends Like Us. I'm Marina Franklin here today. I got Gene Sparrow from Chicago's Radio V103 on Saturday morning. And Andrea Delzo, but not like, don't confuse her for Rachel Delzo. Please don't. Welcome. Yeah. Yeah. I could tell you did your share of watching sitcoms in the 80s because that's a theme song sounding thing. I know, right? I just can't help it. I love doing this every single time. You both are so wonderful. Thank you so much for joining me today. Like, I'm I'm really, I, I love both of you because you both do amazing things for women. You advocate for folks out here, okay, in the struggle, both of you. You know, Jean, if you look at Jean's... Um, Instagram, there's a lot of self-helps on her Instagram that you can follow. So please, you know, if you, you're meeting her for the first time, check her out. And Andrea, who I am meeting literally right now for the first time here in New York. We kind of got into it before because we were talking about radio stations, right? <laughs> she or was you like, I don't know, because you know New York. <laughs> I don't know. I, don't, I mean, I'll give you the music. Music comes from everywhere, but radio. I you mean, just haven't heard everybody yet, comes. Andrea. I mean, you're right. I need to come on Saturday mornings. All right, I'm just gonna hook myself up right now. But New York radio. I mean, Breakfast Club. I mean, come on. Well, that's right. young. That's like new. But V103 been around forever. I mean, you're right. No, let's put it this way. I've been around forever. Let's put it that way. <laughs> See, well, then, there you go. See, so the plug works that I'm going to be coming on Chicago radio at some point then. <laughs> and then go. you can really you prove go. the point. <laughs> indeed, my dear. Indeed. So how have you both been? It's springtime. It's tax season. I was just telling you both how my accountant was harassing me, man, before this recording. I was like, leave me alone. I'm trying to prep. Get out of here. <laughs> Listen, you... girl, just file for that extension and, and call it a day. Give but them some, know... throw some money at the problem and <laughs> give yourself some breathing room. But you still have to pay. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. Throw, yeah. Like I said, throw some money at the problem. Give yourself a little extra time. Estimate it. You'll get it back. Literally, yeah. like there's no need for you to be stressed. Like of all the things in the world for you to be stressing about, this ain't one. Mm-mm. Will they give it back? Yeah. 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 They'll credit it towards something else. Mm, it literally taking just, a long time. Ask your accountant how much she thinks or he thinks you owe. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. She's mad that she's getting her money late when she's the one falling late. Hold on. Right. I, I owe. I think I owe. This, she was saying I owe. I was like, what are you talking about? <laughs> I made money. So she's like, you owe. And I'm like, how much? How much do I owe? I need to find more things to write off. Right? <laughs> That's why I was like stressing. I was like, let me write off. Um, let's see. I took my sister to... Uh, uh, what was that? Uh, what's that? That uh, fusion Asian restaurant in New York? A uh, Fubu Fogo. 
Nobu? Nobu. Okay. How awful I am. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I'm right That's a whole different kind of brand, ma'am. Fubu <laughs> means something different. But I'm glad that that was the first brand that came off your lips, though. <laughs> <laughs> but Nobu, I was like, look, I took her for her birthday. I was like, I this is, whoa. This is a business meal. There was a comedian outside of myself there. Ooh. So business. Okay. Yeah. You should be keeping track of all of that stuff. Wait, and wait, hold up. You're not a business? I am a business. Oh, okay. You didn't do both of those like at the same time when the stuff was due back in March for the business. Okay. Ma'am, our our decisions and our actions have consequences. So what are you saying? Like in March, what happens? Yeah. When you do your March tax, when you do your taxes in March for your business, business, yeah. Then right after that, you do the one for the personal. Yeah, did, but you I know, I'm oh, late okay. on the business. Okay. I'll see. I'm new at the business. That's oh, why okay. it's also stressful because I was like, this is the first time. I was like, there's two. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then you, I think you're supposed to do. Or you both are so good. You're both like, yeah, Marina. Huh. <laughs> And then, like, what are you supposed to do quarterly? You're, like, not supposed to just wait until March, right, or something like it that? It depends on how it's set up. Like, it's, you know, I'm not qualified to give tax advice. I can only say what my CPA tells me. And, you know, we review it all the time. I don't, she has it set up, so I don't have to do, I don't do certain things during the quarters or whatever. She just files some paperwork, and oh. then we we do some stuff at the end of the year. But um, everybody's situation is different. It depends, depends on what kind of corporation you have. So, but this time of year, I think, I think the stress of tax season comes because we hate it so much that we decide that we're not going to deal with it. And then when it comes, it stresses us out because it's a time deadline. That's it. That's what you're feeling right now. And Wednesday, it'll be done. You'll, you'll, you'll breathe the sigh of relief. It'll be over and you'll do it again, you know, whenever the next thing is due. I just, it's like all this. And then, you know, here's the thing, like. I am new at the business corp, uh, S corp thing. And I just, I love playing Fortnite. So every now and then it's like taxes or Fortnite. Mm, <laughs> Fortnite sounds better. <laughs> right. You know, you know, that's, that's a self-soothing, right? You, what, you know Fortnite? That, right? Yeah. Just doing something other than what you know you need to do. We all do it. We all have different things we use for self-soothing, but that's what it is. And that's Okay. So- it's so self-soothing taking out four of these little kids. <laughs> I only, I, I, my highest is seven. I've taken out seven of them. And I'd be celebrating. And then I remember, oh, my God, Marina, these are children. <laughs> what are you doing? You a grown-ass, over 50-year-old woman playing for What is wrong with you? Not a damn thing. Nothing. Thank you. you that's like me playing. That's like fun. me playing Call of Duty. I mean... Yeah, you you have Fortnite and I have Call of Duty. It's okay. <laughs> and I got like so, 10 games on my phone. Uh, I'm like an old lady with my stuff. Like, what's she doing? Okay. So Andrea is in New York. Jean is in Chicago. I'm from Chicago originally, but I've been in New York for 20 some odd years, four or five, almost half my life now, 25 years, maybe more, 28 years. And um, you know what I loved that Jean has on her Instagram is she's talking, well, she had a, a repost of someone talking about how we deal with winter in Chicago mm. versus everywhere else. Jean, can you tell her? Can you tell I don't her? Even, like, I don't even remember what I put on there. It's like, we just layer up. We don't. Oh, um, yeah. 
Oh, yeah. It's layer on top of layer on top of layer. But I actually think it's the same in New York because like I think about our winter uniform. It's like a hoodie, a a peacoat, another bubble jacket, something. Mm Yeah. And then like y'all, I think in New York, Tim's are probably more common footwear here yeah. we might, you know, be rocking some J's depending on, you know, how 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 much snow there is outside or like some big old boots that come up to our knees and with with the, you know, so it's all about the layers. Like I believe in layers. I strongly believe in layers. And I had to learn that. Like I didn't know that because I'm originally from Louisiana. So I came here and was shocked. Ah, well, the, shocked. you know, Andrea, you, you've seen the umbrellas, right? In New York. <laughs> what is that? I mean... Listen, New Yorkers are special. They they <laughs> they set a trend that they hope that the rest of the nation catches on to, which is usually what the case is. So, I mean, we just get away with everything. We're we're uh, uniquely everywhere. They're everywhere. Umbrellas are everywhere. They're like on their shoes, on their on their like attached to bags, attached to strollers. Like we've come up with a way to put umbrellas everywhere so that everywhere, we don't get yeah. wet. It's interesting. It, it is interesting. And I also think it's part island. It's like a lot of Caribbean folks, the way they use umbrellas is different than the way, you know. <laughs> it's a weapon. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah. But I, I, the first time I saw that in the snow, I saw someone using an umbrella in the snow in New York. I was like, what are you? The snow. So, yeah. Just so it doesn't touch them. Yeah, no, it's like you know, <laughs> Chicagoans never. We don't do that. It's just a hood. Well, yeah, no, out here we're like we we don't need to get wet. Well, this is coming from from first first born American. My parents are immigrants. They come out here. My grandparents are out here using their umbrellas in the snow and using their umbrellas in the sun. And I'm like, okay, an umbrella is used for everything. Got it. Not just the rain. So. <laughs> So, Andrea, being your first time on Friends Like Us, I'm going to start with you and I'm going to focus on you a little bit because I I think that, well, a lot. I think that what you are and what you, you just inspire so many. And like I was saying, like I was watching your Instagram this morning. I was reading this one about um, how your parents were told, can you tell us, you know, you know, what's going on with you? It's called... I, I'm I'm sorry I'm gonna get it wrong, so you may wanna <laughs> no correct worries. me. Um myelit myelitis? Myelitis, yes. Transverse myelitis. At the age of five years old, I was diagnosed with transverse myelitis. It's a neurological disorder that affects the spinal cord. Uh and from five to twelve years old, I went through I don't know, a lot <laughs> as a kid, just medically and slowly lost my ability to walk completely by the time I was 12 years old. Yeah. So now I use a a wheelchair full time and we think about it as different. And I'm going to just challenge everyone who just heard me say all of that. Like you heard me say that it's a wow factor, but is it a wow factor because you just thought about your life sitting down in a chair and going through this or a wow factor as in you haven't seen me and you're like, Oh wow, that's a lot. Like, how do you my think wow about was it? the age? My my the age. my was mine okay. was the age and thinking, wow, between five and twelve, you had to had to face um met the medical world, mm-hmm. A, 
And and as a child, that can be very intimidating. And then the next thing I thought was your body is changing during that time period. Like mm-hmm. I, you just, you know, I use the word period, but mm-hmm. you think about it as as young people, like we're becoming adults. And, you know, that's when we, we go through our first change in life. Yeah. And, but then your body was also doing something different that you had no control over in a, in a different way. That was what my wow was, like that the age um, and being able to, process that like that that was yeah that's where I came at it from yeah there's a lot of wows where I'll get where they're like we couldn't we can't fathom it and I'm like that's because it's not represented anywhere I have no idea how to deal with disability I don't see it on tv matter of fact I'm watching Bel-Air right now and I'm like looking at all these shows and I'm like when I was younger watching Fresh Prince I didn't have anyone to teach me how to do this when I'm watching Family Matters or anything else no one was teaching me how to live this life and it's the same thing we can say for for being a woman or for being a black woman or for being a black woman with a disability right there's no representation of me anywhere so yeah the wow fact is there but my wow factor came from I don't see a handbook on how to do this like life is handbook on tv or representation is very linear when we are not linear creatures so yeah so you were writing the handbook writing the handbook so what would you say in from, because you're now, was it 31? 31 <laughs> years? Let's go 30. up. Let's go up. I'm going to be 36 next month. <laughs> oh, my goodness. So 36 years. L- Congratulations. Happy Thank birthday. Thank you. I made it. <laughs> yes. Yes. Celebrating that. Day. So 36 years later, if you were to, I don't know, that's a heavy question, but the handbook what would be like, I guess, five points for someone who's listening to this that could be maybe a parent that's listening to this that could be very helpful? Ooh, a parent. I think it's really hard for parents because parents are so protective and they understand what the landscape of society looks like. And we also understand as adults that you know the bias and you understand the tone and you and and you're just trying to be protective of your of your child so as a pediatric nurse now and then as someone who went through the medical field as a child and understood how people were talking to my parents and how i had to rebel against my parents i'm going to say parents you have to prepare them for that world you have to prepare them to speak up and be self-confident and understand that even though there may be a limitation, that their own ability speaks louder than anything or what anyone could possibly ever say. Yes. I'm trying to think, you know, at five years old. I can't remember five, five years old, but I can remember 12. <laughs> it could, oh, you, so, okay. Yeah. Yeah. I'm trying to think, can I remember five years old? Oh, I, I remember five. Really. I mean, I do remember like being in the playpen. <laughs> and clowns used to scare me. Okay, clowns, yeah. <laughs> kind of remember that. But as I remember a, as... I remember kindergarten. I remember yeah, but my memory is weird. Like I remember just these little moments, but I'm sure there there are things are things that happened along the way, right? That 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 stand out to you? Impact moments. I think we all remember like some yeah. impact moments. So definitely in the medical world, as a kid, you're going to remember impact moments, things that really made you frightened, something that really made you just terrified. But I don't I don't think that, let's say that five to 11 range really 
caught me off guard. That was my parents doing. My parents ah. deal with the doctors, right? My parents take me wherever I got to go. I'm not really worried about it. It's that 12, 13, 14 year old phase where now I'm dealing with my medical issues and being in school and dealing with my body changes and dealing with puberty with other kids around me and them not having a filter or them also not understanding the handbook of of life and trying to figure out what it is that they need to be presented with and not understanding that my very present and visible facing disability doesn't make me different. Well, it does. It made me faster than them. But I mean, hey, you know, <laughs> I was on wheels. It's a little different, right? They're on legs. So I was always trying to race someone down a hallway. I mean, I just wanted to fit in. And that's what I wanted to do. Every kid just wants to fit in. So I, that's where the rebellion came with my parents. I want to go out after school. I want to I want to not go into the school building and go get a bacon, egg and cheese in the morning with my friends and, and get in trouble because I came off a yellow school bus. So for those that know, yellow school bus in New York City, you got to get on the bus and get off the bus to the school, on the bus and off the bus to your home. There's no in between. So for me, getting off the school bus and beelining to the corner store to get a bacon, egg and cheese is a big deal. Mm -hmm. But that was the start of my own rebellion, really owning my independence and my confidence and building friendships outside of school which normally isn't allowed for someone with a disability. You're, you're kind of segregated and intentionally put aside than the rest of the population of school. So that's what, you know, I, I think my parents, who are very, very immigrant-minded, where you just have to work hard and you have to keep putting your best foot forward, and, and you have to also fight for what you kind of want. And they were the prime example of that. I had to fight them to be like, I don't want to take the yellow school bus. Fight them to say that I will never be late to school. And if I was, that I'd end back up on the school bus. And like understanding that life just isn't going to be the silver platter that everyone expects it to be. And then how do you, it's true for everyone. And then how do you, how do you deal with that? How do you deal with, with that type of harnish? Because it's silver, right? And how do you deal with tarnish? Because silver tarnishes if we don't upkeep it. So I like that. I like that, that analogy. Yeah, I love it. And it, also the fact that like you encompass every issue, like your family is <laughs> from South America, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And so as an immigrant, you know, a lot in New York City, you know, everyone comes from like a background where they're like you said, like the first generation being here, like that's a... That's a transition in itself. Yeah. That's a, that's a struggle in itself, just trying to acclimate and be around people who aren't understanding. Do you also speak Spanish or? No, English. My parents are from Guyana. Uh, oh, Guyana. So it's the only English speaking country in South America. So, yeah. Okay. All right. Cool. And then there's also the difference between you and your parents because you have, you know, you are American in a different way than they're American, right? right? Your identity is is different and your way of doing things and the things that you're influenced by are also different. There's a lot of different layers to to that challenge. The thing that I that struck me about what you just said that I can't let go of is that is the segregation mm-hmm. piece of it. And and I have to wonder you know, like you think about it, like who, you know, unless you have somebody who's disabled in some way in your family, 
you don't have to see disabled people. You don't ever see the, you know, like it's almost like it's it's off on the side. You see the the ADA signs mm-hmm. for wheelchairs or for different accommodations here and there because they're required mm-hmm. by law, but you don't always see the people who who need those accommodations. And it starts with what, what dawned on me is we don't that starts when we're in school. Mm-hmm being hidden away. And, you know, while I think some people might try to say that that is a protection, it also feels like it's, it's a, it's a thing of, we don't want anybody to see it. They said it was a protection when we were black and using different water fountains too. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. And that's, that's the thing that strikes me about it is, is how, how it parallels. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, but how durable it is. That's the piece that I think, because like you can't avoid black people, Mm-mm. you know what I mean? <laughs> um, it, or at least it's getting to the point, maybe some places you can't, um, but it's, I don't know, that's messed up on a really deep level. And it makes, it makes me wonder what, you know, what's the deep seated thing that nobody's talking about? Because in, underneath any kind of we're protecting and we're doing this, there's something else there. Well, yeah, like nobody wants to to face facts about their own mor- mortality. Nobody's thinking that they're going to walk out the door tomorrow and 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 that's it. Right? And and life can literally change in the blink of an eye. And and when we really think about disability being the largest and fastest growing minority in the world and we are all encompassing, meaning that anyone can join at any given time at any place anywhere, like it doesn't matter. I mean, that's when we're really saying we're turning the blind eye to mortality because we're not even taking into account, God forbid, I'm disabled at some point. How will I be able to live? And then we perpetuate that by not representing that media, not representing that in the way that we listen or interact with our world. When we think about a ramp or we think about a curb cut, it's not just a wheelchair that uses that. It's not just a walker that uses that, but that's what it was made for. But when you think about the delivery guys or, or the push carts and the strollers, they're all using a ramp. It's the same thing with steps and a ramp. Everybody can get up the ramp, but we put steps in place. That's because society is allowing for steps to continue to be made at the end of the day. Development. Mm-hmm. We're talking about housing, the housing crisis, how much housing is being built. Let's talk about our elderly folks who are coming into this silver tsunami that we're heading into and not having developments made for them to actually live in. This goes far beyond me being a black woman with a disability. I'm talking about my grandma. I'm talking about my auntie. I'm talking about your cousin. I'm talking about all of us combined being able to just access life. Yeah, in New York City, it's absolutely disgraceful when I'm on 116th Street and I see a woman with a stroller and a baby and she has another child with her and she has to debate how to get up those stairs. I mean, these are intense. This is an intense flight. There's no elevator. I attend community boards and this is one thing that I, I have to address because I don't understand how on 116th Street we have no elevator access. What is someone to do? When they get to that situation where they have to get somewhere and there's and there's stairs like what do you what is what is that like what does that say to that individual when they have to reach a destination that you're telling that person 
either they're not, they don't matter or like what they have to do that day doesn't matter. I mean, all of that, it's since whatever through my body, when I have to help, you know, individuals going up the stairs, I'm, I'm disgusted each time I see it. And I don't understand after we've had so many arguments about, you know, disability in New York City and what they have. I mean, they're the worst. It's the worst. Why this is still allowed. It's like, not can just you talk York. to that? Like, Because the ADA is over 30 years old and after 30 years, we still don't have anyone enforcing it. We still have people coming up with some lame excuses that we are a grandfathered in protected facility. I mean, New York City has been sued. We have so many articles about how many times New York City has been in class action lawsuits. And if I have to really big up my city for a second, because I've been to L.A., I've been to Atlanta, I've been to Orlando, I've been to Chicago and and in Chicago, I think the only place that's super accessible is what Maleficent Mile, Magnificent Mile, Magnificent oh, Magnificent Mile. Downtown. Okay, Downtown. Magnificent in Mile, where I can actually push buttons to go into stores, and every curb cut is level. Like once you get out of that, it's it's terrible. So I'm gonna give my city a little bit of love because they've learned from some class action lawsuits, and our curb cuts are at least accessible, and our ferries are able. You can get around. Can you get around? to your ease no no that that's not it and and when we're thinking about that mom in the stroller and getting up the stairs i'm also thinking about grandpa with the cane or or my counterparts with a with a with a motorized wheelchair who can't just be lifted up the steps at the end of the day and i've been through those situations where i have left work it's snowing rolling in snow to get to the, the subway station for the elevator to be out to then have to roll another mile and a half to get to another elevator to finally get to it, uh, the train to get home for the elevator to be out. And then deciding and having train station agents tell me to just take the train back to other stops to another elevator. And I'm like, forget it. Call the fire department and lift me out. Like, I'm, I'm not going to go through this. And it's happened multiple times. But like my last time was... I, I have to get a car. I have to stop paying this disability tax. I call it a disability tax because I pay it endlessly. And and sometimes you have to save your mentality and be like, you know what? This is someone else's problem now. You can't figure out my disability and how I'm supposed to get out of here. Call the fire department. Please call the police station. And then they come and they give me arms. I'll be like, well, what if this, you, don't you save people all the time? Don't you, this is what you're supposed to do. Yeah, it that's is, right. But this is me being vocal. And this is me being having a platform to say, no, do better. Whereas other people are going to feel shame and other people are going to feel disconnected and segregated and the elephant in the room that everyone's pointing at. And instead of being able to speak up and speak out, they have to quiver and hide. And this is why we don't see people out with disabilities in public, because we don't know how we're going to be accepted. We're so taboo to society that we are literally isolating a whole group of people. That's again the largest and fastest growing in the right. world. And and the and the, and the idea that if it happens to you, then you you like you don't realize what that means. I talked to a woman um, who is also a disability advocate. I did an interview with her uh, a couple of years ago. Her name is Haben Germa. Mm-hmm. And I think her disability is vision and hearing. She but in the she's president's quite, office, yeah. She is amazing. But here's the thing that I learned from her when I talked to her that I had I'd never really realized or made the connection, right? She talked about, because there's a, 
let me, I'm going to back up a second and talk about my, my neighborhood. Cause I actually, there are actually a lot of curb cuts in my neighborhood and I'm not downtown um, for whatever reason we have one, but there is a senior community that's right down the street from me. And at the, um, at the corner, at one corner, they have curb cuts at another corner, they do not. And that's the crosswalk that is closest to the main door. And I had a dog who was disabled and on wheels and stuff. And, you know, we made our way around and it's all fine. But I've seen elderly people trying to make their way. And these curbs are, yeah. are high for whatever re- reason. And I can't tell you the number of times I, I, you know, walk somebody. So I called my alderman and I was like, listen, the next time we do this and I and they were fixing that part of the street, I was like, there needs to be a curb cut and a protected walkway for them, for them. All those seniors that are over there, half of them, you know, have some sort of disability or, or mobility issue. Some of them are, are, you know, just use canes. Some have walkers, whatever. It doesn't matter. And they're also kids in the neighborhood and all these other things. We need this. It's a two block stretch at that block. You could do it. And the alderman's like, yeah, thank you for your feedback. And la, 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 la. That's just not in the plan. And I'm like, how is it not in the plan? Mm-hmm. How, how is that? Because if you knocking down the cut curb, it's gone. So all you got to do is put a little thing in it. Yeah. But here's what Hobbin said to me that. And that was the first time I had like realized how difficult it is for, because I literally thought they're doing the work anyway. It won't be that big of a deal. And it was, it was this huge mm-hmm. thing. And the, and I, and like every time the alderman called me, I was like, yeah, no, that's not, that doesn't make sense to me. I see mothers struggling with their strollers. There's a park one block over. Why wouldn't you do this? Kids are walking in the street. People speed down the street. It's time to slow it down, put a bump, do something. And you did that around the corner at the other part. Mm-hmm. So, you know, even though that's not affecting me directly, I, I see it happening all around. And I'm like, why isn't it like, why isn't this simpler? Right. And then Hobbin said this when, when we were talking about it, she said, you know, the thing that's sad about that is that every single thing we call an accommodation actually helps regularly abled people. Mm-hmm. Right. Like email. She used the example of email. Email started because People with, I believe it was, it was a hearing, it was hearing or what have you. It was developed so that they could communicate quicker than the the teletype mm-hmm. or whatever the old technology was. And now you, it's ubiquitous. Like we wouldn't even think of that as an accommodation, mm-hmm. but yet it is in our everyday life. And when she said that to me, I because she, she even talked about the curb cuts. Mm-hmm. She was like, "Your life gets easier if you have the curb cuts too." I was like, "Absolutely, it does." <laughs> she was like, "And so does the mother." And you know, all of all of these different things. And I was just like, huh. But we put the term accommodation on there because why? Because we're referring it to someone with a disability. We segregate disability from everything. Right. And and But it makes everybody's life. It's an accommodation it, 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 for everybody. everybody. Exactly. But that's the same thing as red tape. Going through red tape in a corporate office, it's it's always left to someone's decision, some other person's decision. Or, or it comes down to someone saying, oh, it's money without actually doing a budget. And, and again, this is always red tape is just someone else's yes or no. And, and instead of someone understanding that this accommodation helps everyone, accommodation, right? No, this plan, this societal plan is literally an improvement in, in the direction yeah. of which we wish to be. Exactly. 
Exactly. Well, that's why this article, I do lo- love that. One of my assistants, she's just so good. Um, they're all good. <laughs> um, <laughs> fix it. Fix it. But Ari put this ar- article in the intersection of disability and feminism, why disability rights matter to feminists today. And it's this quote here that struck out to me because I just did a a speech on feminism, like where I had to reclaim feminism, where I didn't realize I was a feminist and I didn't realize how important it was to call myself a feminist. Mm-hmm. And this quote here, like many women today, women with disabilities are vulnerable to losing vital access to reproductive health care, face additional discrimination and experience wage and employment challenges that require louder voices from the feminist community. So like while we're talking you know, let's, and while we're listening to this, don't forget to speak up. Like, you know, like Jean, you're speaking up. It didn't, you said it didn't even affect you, per, but you spoke up. Like, don't forget to speak up. I don't know what happened to me over the years. Maybe it was the pandemic, but I have this thing where I cannot let's not help. <laughs> like, there's a shit slide. Oh my God. I'm at the point now. Where it's like, wait, what? Mm. No. See, here, I had one of those moments like you did, Andrea, where it's like, no, no, no. This is not my problem. I did my part. Now you need to do your part. Like I did what I I came to. I'm not going any further. And even if it's about something little, I think I don't I think it's the I do think it's partially the pandemic, Marina. I also think it may be age, but I think all of us have to get to a point where we say, where we decide, we pick the fights that we're going to have. This girl in my hallway, <laughs> this I have to tell this story real quick. I'm sorry. But this girl, I told her one there was a step that they've just fixed the hallway steps. Speaking of steps, there's no elevator. I'm on a fourth floor walk up. The steps were like horrible. They just fixed them. One of the steps that they fixed, the thing that they, I guess they glued on, it fell off as I was walking down the stairs. So I could have fallen forward, slipped, hit my head right into the wall. So the girl was coming upstairs and I go, please be careful. The step is loose. Okay, just please watch yourself. A week later, there's a guy this Saturday, there's a guy in the hallway, don't know him, smoking a cigarette, drinking. I don't know this dude. I didn't, you know, I'm just like, okay, this don't look good for any woman walking through the hallway. See her again. I didn't realize the same girl. I go, please be careful. There's a dude in the hallway. He's smoking. She, I, she goes, are you the same girl who told me to be careful last week? I go, oh, that is me. And we just started laughing. She was like, you do this a lot, don't you? I go, I can't, I, it's like, I can't help it. If I'm on the platform and I see a guy, you know, like just kind of walking behind women, I'm going to go up to the girl. I go, do you see that guy? Like, pay attention. Mm-hmm. You got your headphones in, pay attention. But anyway, enough of me. No, that's, the, that's the auntie coming out. <laughs> it, it's It's got to be. But Andrea, I, want, it's okay. I wanted to ask you, do you have like, do you have to put together like 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 you know how they have the green book? Do you have to put together like places or where you know you're not going to have elevator access or you know? I did that when I was in my 20s, right? I'm in my 30s now. So, I you know, it gets exhausting having to figure out what's accessible, who has a bathroom cuz it's not just about steps, right? It's about okay, how long can I stay at a function cuz do they have a bathroom that I can get into or that is on a floor that I can access? 
And sometimes my friends will be like, yeah, we have a bathroom. And I get to the bathroom and the bathroom's the size of a, of a closet. And I can't, my chair can't get in that. So then I'm like not drinking something for six hours and I have to hold my bladder. And then, you know, so that was in my twenties and I don't do that anymore. Now it's like, I'm not wasting my energy or giving my time to places that aren't accessible or, or don't understand accessible needs and therefore trying to make it apparent and accommodating. So I just don't do that anymore. But in terms of like feminism and medical and, and healthcare has always segregated disability. And that sounds really, really crazy, but let me break it down. Hospital systems are not prepared for people with disabilities. That sounds even crazier because we treat them. Okay, let's break it down even more. The ADA was built in or put into place in 1990. The last update was in 2008. We've had over a thousand different medical grade um, mobility device changes since 1990, over a thousand. We can say over a hundred thousand at this point because technology changes in a blink of an eye. So when you consider healthcare not being able to treat disability. For one, there's no language in any book. So whether you're thinking about the medical model, the nursing model, the social work model, the any model in healthcare, disability language is not there. So therefore, we have to code switch. Not only do I have to code switch as a woman to a male doctor, I now have to code switch as a Black person because I can't seem too aggressive. I have chronic pain and I also can't be seen as someone who's um, drug user or 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 drug seeking, and then my disability. I have to make myself small in order to be heard. If I need reproductive issues, I'm talking to my doctor about wanting to have a pregnancy or maybe freeze my eggs. They tell me no, that's not really in the cards for me. That it's not been studied. Women who have spinal cord injuries who have become pregnant are told that they have to be put to sleep in order to deliver their babies because. Um, anesthesiology doesn't understand how to place an epidural with a spinal cord injury. How long has spinal cord injuries been around? How long has this been happening? How how have women been having babies this whole time? Right. Um, okay, so I have a question for you yeah. based on becoming a nurse, becoming because you're a registered nurse, yes, right? Yes. So what was that like being in nursing school? And then having this perspective where you're like, well, wait, wh when do we talk about this part of it? Like what? I, yeah, this, I can't like the disconnect had to be. Um, so I went, through, I went through my undergrad studying biology and neuroscience, thinking that I'm going to be a doctor and cure pain. Neuroscience, my doctors didn't want me to be a lawyer to sue them. So, hey, why not? Uh, and I go on thinking like I'm not going to be able to get a job where I want so I'm going to either be in a classroom or I'm going to be sitting home eating bonbons like society says I'm supposed to be. So getting into nursing was never a thing for me. I never saw myself as a nurse and none of the nurses that have ever taken care of me, remember five years old to now 36, coming on 36, none of my nurses had a visible disability. None of my nurses I seen in a wheelchair, walker, anything. So it wasn't even a thought process that I can be a nurse. So let's fast forward. I, I apply, I get in and I face all this pushback. We don't think you could be a nurse. How could you do CPR? Even today, people think like, well, nursing is simply based in a hospital setting. And so therefore your care has to be able to 
lift 100 pounds and you have to be able to push and pull and you have to be able to do X, Y, and Z to be a nurse. My disability doesn't say that I can't do those things. I'm just doing them differently. And nursing is not just based in a hospital setting. So we have to change our mindsets about what is portrayed. Again, I'm just going to, you know, point the direction to, to representation because Grey's Anatomy, ER, I'm going to call them all out. None of them showed anyone with any type of disability until the good doctor came out, what, three years ago, talking about a doctor with autism. And again, that's a very small section of space considering how many doctors in wheelchairs, surgeons in wheelchairs, nurses that are in wheelchairs now, that you went with someone who has autism that can speak in a certain way to be able to grab that attention. I think about uh, NCIS and um, CSI. Yes, they now, yes. Because those are the only shows that had a medical professional, but they were both um, coroners. Mm -hmm. You know, they hidden. were doing autopsy. They were hidden. Yeah. So they were both, and they were both in the basement. And even the, I think the only show I can think of that's out, that was out recently, I think it's been canceled now, NCIS New Orleans, mm -hmm. that uh, uh, Daryl Chill Mitchell. Right, yes. He, and he's part of the team and he, and they show him going with them. Play. That's the only place where, where somebody with a disability is actually integrated into the action of the show as opposed to a separate place that they go. And, you know, I'm thinking all this time that it's it was cool that these disabled actors were, were able to work on these other shows. And yes, they were part of the action in, in a certain way, but they also had them in a very contained environment mm. that was... Disability you know, friendly. Like it, yeah. It's, it's disability yeah. soup. It's what you can digest. How much of my disability can we give you and how much of it can you digest without saying, oh, that's too much. That's too taboo. I don't mm. want to see that. Right. We can eat it up when it's the patient. Right. It's the patient that's going through this, but it's the person that's coming back to take care of the patient or take care of someone else. No, disability is not seen as as being able to be a caregiver. That's why women have the role of caregiving, right? And then when a woman, something happens to a woman, what happens when we have breast cancer? We have to have a mastectomy, when we have to have our uterus taken out from us. We instantly don't feel like a woman anymore. We instantly lose our identity. We instantly lose this ability to caregive for someone else, not because that's what actually happens, but because society says that you no longer matter in the, in the present tense of what we needed you for. Indeed. I know that feeling. Right. As, as a, a now uterus free human. Um, yeah. It's, it's, it sucks it's, you away from your identity. And, and it's wild. And in the way society now treats you as if you need to be padded and held your hand through every step. And don't get me wrong. Some people need that. But you also have to have the language on the flip side to say we can give you the encouragement and the confidence to still be the person that you are. Forget the gender, forget the, the anything else that we've taken from you. Just be you. Just be you. Just be you. It's just human yeah, identity. About that. You know, it's it wasn't until I had. Well, I'm for fourth year of surviving breast cancer, but I, I know what you like walking in and them telling me there's no way you're going to be able to have children and. But I, I remember that feeling of, well, he also ain't trying to help me to figure this out as right. a black woman. I felt that. And I remember telling the assistant who was in that uh, clinic, 
She was like, how was your experience? I was like, I, it was horrible. I was like, I, you're black, I'm black. I, I got to tell you, I did not feel like he was very encouraging or helpful. And I still feel like I have a lack of information and resources. That's how I feel. But let's think about how if disability language was now included into that experience. Yes. This is what you're looking, this is what your future trajectory now holds. You're still going to be a comedian. You're going to have a podcast. You're going to do all of these great things. Right. But right now I need to get this part done. Yeah. That's a different outlook. It's a different outlook. And then even if it was for children planning, again, disability is going to take you out of that because in about 49 states, if you have a disability and a prevalent disability, the mother, anyone can then say they can take your child away from you because you're unfit as a disabled noted mother. The fact that my health records state that I'm in a wheelchair and the fact that my health records state that I have a chronic illness and I have access to certain opioids for my illness, right? They can instantly deem me as an unfit mom. So now let's try. Right. What's the the one state that is not that is not the case? California. Interesting. California. And, And California still has some loopholes there. So when I love to look at the map of the United States. New York and California, those are the only places I can ever live. But I can't live in California because everything is based on donation versus Mm. being government funded. And everything in New York is government funded, which means you're going to take a long time to get it. Mm. (laughs) So either way, it's like six in one hand, six, uh, half a dozen in the other. Right. And in New York State, only three clinics three clinics in New York City. It's found in New York City, not even the state. So in New York State, there's three, but they're located in New York City. Three women healthcare clinics that are fully accessible, including mammogram machines and sonography. Yes, three. Women healthcare clinics. One of them has reduced in size and that's with NYU Hospital. Yes, I can call them out because I attend that clinic. I've seen what it was in its heyday and I see what it is now. And there's only one doctor on staff and I have to wait almost a year, two years to see her. What? Right. But this is what I'm saying. I'm 36. I'm thinking about I want to freeze my eggs. I want to go talk to these doctors. I want to have these conversations. You know, I want a family at some point, but my whole life medical is like, oh, you'll deal with that next year. You'll deal with that next year. We'll deal with that another time or you don't want to do with that late. right now. And now I'm 36 and I'm like, when am I supposed to do this? And no one has yeah. answers. There's no resources. There's nothing anywhere. And you have to really go deep diving into the dark web to try to find information that you need. And it shouldn't be Is like there that. anyone in office right now who speaks to this at all? Tammy Duckworth. I was just going to say that's the only person I know <laughs> Tammy of. Tammy Duckworth. In Illinois. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Tammy Duckworth. And, and the thing is, I think the... The visual of her has made a difference. But I also wonder sometimes if, and and for people who don't know, Tammy Duckworth is the sen- one of the senators from Illinois. She's the junior senator from Illinois. Um, and But I wonder if part of it has to do with her military service. Oh, of course. That because, because it happened, because her disability happened as a result of serving this country, and I, you know, I'm not taking anything away from her or what have you. She deserves every uh, accolade that she gets for that, for that work that she, she's done for on behalf of all of us. But I wonder if her disability is more acceptable because of how it happened and how people are like, oh, well, it was a sacrifice for me. Ergo, da-da-da-da-da. 
but she's even when she was she was um you know local in in legislation and things like that that was that has always been um front and center yeah i mean but we can say um holly uh, i don't remember his Ma- i think it was matthew holly he was a senator who got in he was a wheelchair user yes um i think that's his name forgive me if i'm incorrect but yeah, I mean, he didn't speak to the disability world, but again, all of his acolytes that had gotten or alleged acolytes that had gotten him to where he was, was something that was was digestible. And therefore he can move those mountains, right? Like me, I've, I've worked in state senators' offices before. I've campaigned in, at Roland Capitol Hill. I've spoke to and campaigned for disability rights in action. And to be honest, again, unless you are affected or someone that you know or you hear such an impact story, how likely are you to be the ally? And then how likely are you to then put forth some type of bill to then show that you're an ally and then help this community? Nine times out of 10, we're hearing Medicaid being cut, Medicare being cut, Social Security being cut. It's all these bad things that are happening all of the time when we're really just trying to say, wait a minute, what's the next step for us when we hit this age? Forget this age. What's the next step for us if we uh, acquire this disability? Mm -hmm. What's the next step? What's the next move? Why are we still stuck in 1990 when we're in 2023? Right. And- Marina, you brought up that piece about like the intersectionality of mm-hmm. this all. And it's like this conversation sounds exactly the same as a, a civil rights when you when it comes to race conversation. It's a it's a, it also is the same conversation we have around being an immigrant and integrating into society or being a part of American society or becoming an American uh, citizen. Uh, it is the same conversation we have around you know, gender identity and trans rights and um, LGBTQIA, every issue that's in there. It's the same conversation every single time. And it is because who we are is not normalized. Whoever, whatever our identities are, when they are not white and male, they are not, you know, they're on some sort of spectrum as to what is acceptable. But this conversation sounds exactly the same as as the the freedom and liberation conversations in every single marginalized group in this country. It and and when you have more than one of those identities, it gets doubly, triply, quadruply hard. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I didn't know that um like this article had brought up like abortion rights and how mm-hmm. important it says for many disabled women, pregnancy and access to an abortion is often a life or death situation. So to ban abortion for women, no one is even talking about disabled women. That hasn't even been a part of it. I've not heard one person. And the fact that they're more vulnerable to assault. Yes. All the time. And the Me Too movement has completely left disabled women. And and if you layer that on top of the abortion rights thing, like... It it is it is a very hard navigating field. And I say this coming as a nurse. When you're already trying to give women who've been in that spectrum of being assaulted or or making the decision of having an abortion, and you have to understand something, that these are decisions that are very hard. We think that we take them so lightly. Oh, I can just go get an abortion. No, these are very emotionally driven decisions and and oftentimes can be gut-wrenching. De- depending on the circumstances and to have 
a vulnerable population like disabled women particularly. And I'm going to put Black disabled women on top of that because they're really at the bottom of the totem pole in this aspect. Uh, What I've seen and what I've experienced being on both sides is very hard. When you are giving resources that necessarily aren't accessible, you already know that this person is going to fall down the drain. Again, this comes back into just societal obstacles. Places that are supposed to house people who have gone through assault or or safety nets, they're not often accessible. So then these women who have physical disabilities are going back to their abusers because there is nowhere for them to go or there's a wait list too long or there may be two accessible units out of 50 and they're already taken or claimed for depending on when someone shows up. So now they're going back to that home and that home, they maybe have a a beneficiary or someone who's overseeing their social security. So now they're under financial control, under sexual control, under everything. And we're not talking about it. We're not saying anything. There's no action being put forth. And it's just about, again, able-bodied experience to resource without even, okay, forget someone with a physical disability. What about someone with who's blind, who who may have a speech impediment, who may have a hearing impediment or just extreme anxiety, who can't even speak up or can't even say anything? How do we get or them, the right? How do we get them their resources? How do we be able to explain to them that we're there to help or that there is help available when there's really nothing and there's no language base? We And then- if you do want a child or you do want to continue on your pregnancy or whatever it is that you're going through and there's nothing there for you either. There's no one to tell you anything. So what I'm saying, I'm creating this handbook. It's like literally creating a handbook and trying to make sure that there's not only resource or, or pinpoint resource, but also just trying to come together with other organizations to say, can you provide a space? Because right now there's nothing. Well, what I would, I'm I'm wondering is do you have like a close knit circle of friends or groups or people that so because when I when I hear you talking about this I you know like for me finding other breast cancer survivors made me feel not so alone in it you know like who do you reach out to that is that you can talk to that you could share and this is what it's like Instagram that's what it's that's what it started that's what kickstarted me into this platform was using Instagram to kind of vent about me going through 76 interviews to try to find clinical placement. Like I shouldn't be facing this type of discrimination and I shouldn't be doing this. And, you know, I reach out to that, but I mean, in terms of like our close circles, I really, I don't want to say that I don't trust anyone, but I have huge trust issues. You know, the medical world has, has, as a kid, you don't get your voice heard until you're 21 your parents are the ones making those decisions nine times out of 10 until you're 13 or 14 years old. And then maybe you have a say, maybe you don't have a say, um, depending on how severe a situation is or how severe uh, another person may present to my parents what should be done, right? So my say is not there. So for me to reach out to people, I have to build this sense of trust that they're in my corner versus trying to do what's best for me without my say. And that's what it is all the time. It's, oh, we see this person with a disability, so I'm trying to protect them versus getting my input and understanding where I am at and meeting me where I'm at. And that's all I ever want for anyone is to just be able to meet them where they're at and and 
see what it is that they need from me and how I can best help them. And it should always be a two way street. But on my end, I really it's very limited. And I know that may sound terrible, but it is. Yeah. I saw the story of you going in and talking to a patient that was very, I guess, having a, a difficult time with other nurses. Can you talk about that story? Because that stood out to me as something that was like where you're using your experience to help others. Yeah. So I was in nursing school. A peer of mine came up and was like, I'm having a difficult time. I just need to get some stuff. Can you help me with this patient? This patient had already gotten labeled as being a difficult patient from the nurses on staff. I'm a nursing student. So the nurses on staff had already let us know that this patient would probably not get up to go to PT, would not want to let us do too much, but do what we can. So I went in to the room after my peer had asked me for some help and this woman starts crying, hysterically crying. I think something is wrong. Like I may need to go get my professor. And as I'm like unfolding the blood pressure cuff and I'm looking at her and I'm saying, take deep breaths with me. You're okay. You're fine. She looks at me and she says, I thought my life was over. Now, instantly, I know what that meant because I'm another black woman. And yeah, so she's a black woman. She had just had a CVA, which is a, which is a stroke to her left side of the body. She was not able to move um, her arms, her leg, one side of her body, arms and legs. So she's here seeing everyone walk in and take care of her. And here I am rolling into the room, taking care of her. And her words say, I thought my life is over. I knew what she meant. I didn't need her to explain it to me. But to me, I'm saying to her, like, I had to hold it together because I knew what she meant. And I'm saying to her, well, your life is only going to be older if you stay in this bed. Let's go. We got to get up. Like, we 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 don't want to stay in here. This is this is boring and it smells bad. Come on. <laughs> and just trying to keep her uplifted. But that experience for me knew, set me on the right track. It let me know that I was supposed to be where I was. But for this woman, now she has this whole new outlook on life thinking that life isn't over anymore, thinking that she can get up and go to PT and that there just may be another way to do something hmm. and never getting that from your healthcare team. I just gave this woman back her life and she didn't even, just by, just showing by, showing, just by being there, just by saying, hi, yep. how can I help you? Like, And it's, beautiful. it is beautiful, but I also wish in some aspects that I had someone do that for me. But I am happy that I was able to do that for someone else. Yeah. Yeah. God, it's just so. I love that story. It's no. so beautiful. It touched Don't, me. That's why I was like, because yeah. there's so many experiences when you are in a hospital where you don't feel like people hear you. Um, mm -hmm. And then you get that one person that's like an angel. And it's this, it's always called the kindness of strangers, you know, that is just, mm -hmm. it's profound. And it stays with you. And that story just stayed with me. So thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Jean, what were you going to say Beautiful. before I... I... I was thinking about, because I was a caregiver for my father who had dementia. And I think about when you said earlier, Andrea, about, you know, this, I, I can't remember, it was a silver something. Oh, um, the silver platter? Silver, <laughs> the silver something, yeah. where, where there's going to be a wave of people that tsunami. could be disabled. Yeah. Silver, silver tsunami. But I think about also um how how alzheimer's dementias and and things like that are in a in an essence a disability that 
ends up being seen as um, something that takes away the agency of the person. Now, clearly, there is a point at which, you know, people with um, declining, um, you know, capacity, intellectual, not intellectual capacity, um, brain activity and things where they do need somebody else to help them with decisions. But one of the things that I always talk to my friends who are facing this with their families, because it's something that I realized um, in my journey with my father was that, you know, even if you have uh, Alzheimer's or dementia, and even if you are, are not always the, have the capacity that you once had, that you do still participate in your care that there is that they sh- their voice is always t- to be heard, um, and I had a conversation with a friend who is having challenges um, caring for their mother, who has Alzheimer's and has taken away a lot of her agency and made a lot of decisions allegedly on her be- behalf, uh, assuming you know the best case scenario. And I'm thinking to myself how must she feel, Mm. right? Because she's still in there, right? Mm -hmm. And I don't know that we recognize, you know, that spectrum of of diseases or disorders as a disability at this point. But when you said the piece about people um, doing things for you as opposed to with you or listening to you, that I, rem- I remember a couple of distinct moments like that with my father where, you know, when he was lucid, he had some very clear, clear directives that he was like, okay, this is what I need you to do for me when I'm not able to, mm-hmm. right? And I did my best to do what he wanted me to. But I see so many people get scared and get, um, and when you get scared, the thing you want to do is control everything that you can. Mm-hmm. Um, and 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 it it strikes me that what you're talking about, that silver tsunami, is going to be about how we manage care, how we look at care that could affect any whether it's a physical disability or something else. Like it's it's I think it's more common than anybody will want to um face. Mm-hmm. Because I think people have a very narrow um, reference point, A, but there's also a very narrow picture in people's heads because we hide disability so much that, you know, everybody's disabilities are not right up front. And yeah, like that, like, and I never thought of my dad as having a disability per se, but I do know that moment that you talked about, and I recognize it as something that I've sat there and done and talked to other people about. Yeah. And that's scary. That's really scary to think of, of how many people will not have agency in their own care because of how people look at them because of the condition that is on that chart. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, how do you set that up beforehand? Do you, when as a nurse, um, do you see patients already have like, like, what do you, you set up a person who is responsible for your care ahead of time. Let's, you can. like you said, no one really knows. You can and, until, until no one knows. Yeah. And, and you can only give 
and people can only do what what they know. And and you know, we don't like having those conversations about healthcare directives. We don't, especially in the black community, we don't want to talk about death. It's taboo. You know, you bring up death and it's automatically don't bring that on my house. Don't don't put that in this atmosphere. That's right. But let's be real about something. If we don't talk about it, we're allowing the healthcare teams to decide for us by how they present information to our family. Okay, and and that's the problem that I have. I've been through it with my grandfather. I've seen it with my grandmother. I've seen it with other members of my family. I've seen it with my patients where the way you present dependent on paper also then determines how physicians or nurses will treat you and then develop how vocal you are. You become a combative patient. You become a noncompliant patient and so on and so forth. and this is because there's no language there. It's not incorporated in how how we learn or how healthcare develops going forward. So when we miss the mark of being able to give true information without a fair tactic, how can we allow for people to actually put down directives or actually be okay with talking about the inevitable? Inevitable is that we are will in not to get heavy, we will, we will expire. We will, we, if you're alive, we'll, you alive, you die. won't die. It's it. It's what it is. You, you would think after a global pandemic, we all understood, you know, I was telling someone who was giving me a facial yesterday. That's why I look kind of, <laughs> if you, you look so glowing. The, well, there's also mm-hmm. some like, it's kind of like when they, you know, they, they clear the road mm-hmm. and it looks like bumpy at first. That's what's going on. But like, um, <laughs> I was telling the woman, she asked me why I still wear a mask. Like I'm very, I switched the microphones at the comedy clubs. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I'm the, I was at a comedy club party last week. Everyone was upset with me because I'm the only person wearing a mask. And it just reminds me of how much people don't listen to you or, or understand what's going on with you. Mm-hmm. And I said to this woman, I said, we just came out of a global pandemic. And I think we didn't learn the lesson because the lesson was, how do you help your community? How do you have empathy for other people? Mm-hmm. How? And that, you know, for me, the pandemic was spiritual because it was teaching us you have to take care of not just yourself, but everybody in every other country. It's not just America. Mm-hmm. It's Africa. It's continent of Africa. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, it's China, you know, and we didn't learn that lesson. So that's why I still wear a mask because I know it's still coming because we haven't learned how to help others. So I guess my question for you, Andrea, is as a nurse, like what are some, as as a patient, what are some questions that you think are good to ask when you're in the room? Oh, that can be anything and everything. But if you don't like what you're hearing, the first thing I always say is what's your differential diagnosis? If you don't like what you're hearing, you have given a slew of symptoms and Something is wrong and they're telling you it's in your head or they're saying, oh, just lose a little weight. What is your differential diagnosis? I want to know where you're at. I want to know what you're thinking. What are the thought processes? What are the what are the diseases that you're thinking about? And why are we not red flagging what I'm telling you? Yes. Let me know, because understandably so doctors are looking at you like you're dumb. I know what's worth and you're going to listen to what I say. 
and us saying, yes, you're right. You went to school for this. I'm going to, I hear you. Okay, fine. I take your word for it. No, no. You ask for the differential diagnosis. You have a pen and a paper, you write it down. And then you go home and you call your insurance company or you go online on your insurance card and you see another doctor in the same field and you go into their office and you ask them, okay, these are my symptoms. Tell me what you're thinking. And then if again, they're writing you off, ask for that differential diagnosis and see if it's changed from something that was told to you before. And again, if you don't feel like it's it's hitting right and, and you've done everything that they're telling you, you go online again and you find another doctor and then you ask the same doctor what their differential diagnosis is. Because you know what? It's up to us to advocate for our own health care. And no doctor can tell you what you can or cannot do. It's your decision at the end of the day. So you can look up Google, you can be on CityMD, you can, you can do anything and everything. But at the end of the day, you really have to advocate for how you feel and why it's off. Because if you're not in touch with your own self, no one's going to be in touch with you. And then they're just going to poke, cut, prod, give you prescriptions. And then you end up with psychosis. And then you are in the same boat that you went in there with. Yes, ma'am. (laughs) Ma'am. That's a mouthful. And and you know what? I'm going to add on to that because as a I've actually had really positive medical uh, interactions that, you know, over my lifetime of doctors actually hearing me, um, my, my, one of my main doctors that I've had for 20 some years is, is a blessing, ma'am, is a black woman. Mm -hmm. So, you know, having a, and, and I also have uh, quite a few medical professionals in my family that I can always ask for another opinion and bring that to them. And I find that that helps a lot as well, because the minute you start saying things that they understand, then they realize, because I, I have been asked when I was caregiving for my father, I went to every appointment and I was in there asking questions. But And, and there were several times when I was asked if I was a nurse or a doctor. And I said, no, I'm neither. I'm a reporter. And baby, <laughs> that changed the temperature. Temperature in the room, okay? Because I had my little notepad and my pen, and I was like, "What did you call mm-hmm. that?" Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep, I record. Well, I'm sorry, I mm-hmm. record them. Yeah, can I? That's 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 in, that can be an interesting um, method of of interacting with them. But anytime you're doing anything where you're paying attention, and I had my dad's home. Um, home care nurse, uh, who I ended up realizing I was, I went to high school with him, with his brother, his older brother. But when he came to the house, uh, to do my dad's initial, uh, home care evaluation, and I'm asking all these questions and stuff. And he said, and he, he asked me, he was like, wait a minute. He was like, I don't remember seeing you in, in, you know, class, you know, science stuff, whatever, and things. He was like, are you a doctor now? And I was like, oh, no, uh -uh, I'm a reporter. He said, oh, okay, fam, okay. And then he said, and I was just like, why does everybody keep, because at that point, I just needed to know what was going on with it. This was right at diagnosis, like trying to figure out what was going on, how we were going to care for him, all of this. And he said, let me tell you something. The reason why you're you're getting the reactions you are, he said, is because so many people are so uninvolved. Mm in 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 their own care he said much less a family member's care they want to know they're going to be okay 
He was like, but we are so used to people not being adherent, uh, not even listening to us. He was like, and we know that y'all are in shock. We know that, you know, getting a diagnosis is, is, is a challenge. You know, I'm sure Marina, when you, you know, got your diagnosis, you did, cause I've been with friends when they've gotten their cancer diagnoses and they asked me what the hell happened. Yeah. You, you're not listening, you're listening with trauma ears. So that's why I record. Cause you, you're no, you're like this. Exactly. And I, I ended up, and my friends take me because they know I'm a remember and I'm going to take the notes and all those other things. So it, it's like I had had some practice at it before I did with my dad, but he was just like, he said, it's a blessing and a curse to have somebody like you. And I was like, what? He said, because we're so not used to it, we don't know how to engage with it. He said, but we also know that it's going to be a better outcome for, for our patients when somebody is actually paying attention to what's going on. He said it also challenges us, which a lot of people don't like to be challenged. And I said, oh, okay. But I, you know, I knew this guy, I knew his family, and it was an honest conversation that I don't think he could have had with anybody else. But that part, that part about you challenge somebody, people don't like to be challenged. Mm -hmm. And, and it's scary to do so because so many people just give over to the medical field thinking they don't have any power at all. And um, when I tell you, I would come in and one of my dad's doctors used to laugh when he was like, you ready? You ready to take your notes, Miss Sparrow? Yes, I am. As a matter of fact, I am, sir. How are you today? Yeah. <laughs> like, I don't And he actually, I think, enjoyed because he actually was able to have a conversation about what was happening and some ideas. And he really liked my dad as well. So it was just like, and my dad, my dad used to, he used to get cut. He would just, he would like it because he would be like, "Uh oh, here she comes. <laughs> oh, gee, you know, are you good daughter <laughs> yeah. too? That must've been like, you know, I, I'll, I rem- I took care of my dad too. And he was, you know, he had a stroke and then, yeah, it was, it was some time of really, you know, trying to be there and advocate for him. But I do remember him looking at me one day and going, baby, you did all right. <laughs> he goes, mm-hmm. you, you actually, you, you're good. And I, that, was very, that was, that was nice. <laughs> that was nice to have him go, you know, yeah. I did good with you. So yeah, I, I want to, you know, like this part of this article where they say um, how black patients um, adjust their behavior to reduce chances of discrimination in hospitals. They say 32% pay special attention to how they dress. Mm-hmm. 35% modify their speech or behavior to put doctors at ease. Mm-hmm. And 41% Code of black switch. patients signal to providers that they are educated, knowledgeable, and prepared. Mm-hmm. Jean, like half of the black patients reported bringing a companion into the examining room to observe and advocate for them. Mm-hmm. And more than 25% report avoiding medical care because they believe they will be treated unfairly. Mm-hmm. Oh, so that's my, very mm. prevalent. I'm sorry. Go ahead. So my question to you is like, how can you, along with what you were about to say, how can you report someone? It seems like there's a mm-hmm. wall around doctors that you cannot get through. Um, I'm a tattletale. <laughs> I, I am a tattletale, and I've been through it where, you know, the tale of two cities, right? I, I'm in Brooklyn, and Brooklyn is known for the first African-American hospital. And you you show up at this hospital hoping that your counterparts are going to care for you like they're caring for their family members, right? And then you realize that this hospital is um, underfunded, and the staff is short, and they're overworked, and 
even though they're trying to provide you with that mom and sisterly loving care, it doesn't exactly roll out that way. So then you go into the big hospitals up in the city and, you know, they're super funded. You're getting Welch's drinks and you're getting name brand food and you're like, oh, my God, I actually can eat this. But your care is subpar. Um, The first thing in any hospital setting is you reach out to your patient advocate. But to be honest, corporations are corporations. Healthcare is a business. It's all about the money. And if you don't have the money to speak up, no one's listening to you. So I stopped turning to them for help and I started turning to the media outlets and the journalists and the reporters because let's be real about something. It's it's the journalists and the reporters that are going to raise the hell that says this is not right and actually give it a platform for then lawmakers and doctors to say, OK, no, we can't do this and, and people should be treated better than this right now. I wish that the reporters weren't just talking about like the nursing shortage versus yes. the care for actual patients. You're talking about a shortage as if it's going to be able to be repaired. You're not talking about the patients, in which case the health of these patients are going to be completely scarred and marked and therefore outcomes not being the way we need them to be. And we're not adding doctors to this conversation. We're leaving nurses. We're, we're adding doctors to the conversation, leaving nurses out of the conversation, out of their own shortage. And then you're silencing and, the patients. <laughs> and the reality is, is that that nursing shortage ain't new. Isn't, isn't like, I have several, several nurses in my family and one, a couple of friends who have been travel nurses for that reason and made really good money doing it because there is such a shortage and has been for, I'd say, at least a decade, mm-hmm. if not longer. And just like the airlines after 9-11 were because of the shutdown of airspace and things like that, were saying, oh, we're going to tank and we need government help. Those airlines were in trouble before 9-11 happened. And when when the crisis happened, they had something to blame it on. Same thing with the nursing shortage, like at least in in the areas where I know folks and that's in the South and here in the Midwest, that this has been a problem since the early 2000s, maybe. I don't I you know, I don't know how long it's been, but it's been it seems like it's been a long time. And so it's and then COVID just tip that right over the edge. And like you said, you know, again, because it's a support position, now we're seeing who really doing the work. Now we, everybody can see who's really doing the work. Listen, the pandemic doctors didn't even want to go into the rooms. The nurses were the ones that were there breaking their backs when you have 300 plus pound patients and no support to be able to help turn them or keep them comfortable. And then you're wondering why people are leaving in droves. Hello, the silver tsunami is also happening. We have our baby boomers who are retiring. It's like one thing after another, and no one wants to say we're going to stop the hemorrhage, excuse the pun, but right, we're going to stop the hemorrhage from, from all of it, from all sides. Because again, we as human beings fail to meet the other needs of human beings and we label it as special. We label it as accommodation. We label it as something else versus just human need. And we see that in every sector, whether it's healthcare, whether it's in journalism, whether it's in in social work, everywhere is just failing to meet human need. Your human need is different than my human need. And you label my human need as special because I use a wheelchair, but it's just human need at the end of the day. And we have to fund human need because that's the only way existence continues to grow and move forward. 
but we're turning a blind eye right now and we're turning it to multiple different factors that make up our everyday life. And we need to kind of get to a space where we're not just calling out doctors or calling out lawmakers or calling out journalists, but actually saying, this is what we need. This is how we work together and get it done versus nitpicking. Cause we're all nitpicking at each other at, at every point. Now, everything is a problem. Yeah, everything, everything is an issue. Everything is becoming a bigger issue than what it was and more prevalent than when it was because we're failing to meet human need. And I think some of that is the focus on the problem as opposed to the solution mm-hmm. And the and remembering that the 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 solution is it's it's like what Marina just said. It's like we haven't learned our lesson and understanding the essence that's underneath all of this, right? It's not just about wearing a mask to, you know, protect oneself and the people around this. It's not just about, you know, giving people voice and agency when they're in a in a doctor's office or wherever they are being able to function. It's about actually giving a okay. shit. And actually saying, you know what, the lesson that I've learned is that my well-being is connected to your well-being. And that by caring for myself, I'm caring for you. By caring for you, I'm caring for myself. It's so simple, but somehow some people are getting it. And some people are doubling down on the opposite. And I don't know if it's the way we've been cultured and acculturated now or what it is. Cause I think it's a, I think it's a bunch of different things. Yeah. Cause we would rather not look at it. And the reality is, is that there's a whole big lump of something growing under Mm -hmm. that rug that is alive and is going to be an issue at some point. And, and it's going to get worse before it gets better if we don't look at it. Like, just look at it. It becomes so much easier if you just look This at is it. where I'm happy that, like, I'm a millennial. I'm in that millennial phase, right? Oh, so millennial. Right? Like, I'm a millennial <laughs> and, you know, I'm a little older. But this is where I really have some hope for Gen Z to say, you know what, let's flip up that rug and see what the heck everyone else has been sweeping underneath here. Because they're coming out with one, two hits nowadays. And I'm like, okay, where was this voice when I needed it? And and where were we in politics? But now it's millennials that are getting into politics, not Gen Z. And this is where we see the power play of things either coming to the forefront, like AOC and and, and the women that are in politics right now. They're all millennial women and majority of the newer generation of the Senate are pulling these efforts forward. But you still have so much that you have to kind of get through that red tape. And I'm hoping that Gen Z kind of helps out there, too. (laughs) Listen, remember how much power you guys have in numbers as millennials. Speaking on behalf of the two Gen Xers in the room, (laughs) um, you know, we are an ignored generation, right? We we there's a lot that maybe we haven't gotten right. Um, But and and there's. There's so much that has been done to us. Yes. In addition, yeah, we were right? swimming in it. Right. Well, but both the of thing us, is, millennials and Gen X, yeah. right? We came into it. Exactly. Like, but here's the thing. You guys have the numbers that we mm-hmm. don't. They cannot ignore you. The thing about Gen Z is they're making a whole lot of noise. They're probably a little bit bigger than Gen X, 
but they're making noise in a different way. And I think they have more hope than we do because, you know, we got trauma <laughs> um, that we're only just now healing in our 50s. But but the thing is, though, is that it, there is power in, in, in not only in numbers, but in numbers of people who say something. And that, that speaks to what Marina mm-hmm. talked about earlier. Speak up. It's like, say something, yeah. you know, and it's not just that that you see that that BS, if you see something, say something. Right. It's like, if there's something you care about, talk about it. Don't assume that that something won't happen, right? Because if it, if you remain silent, you know, you show you sure won't get anything because a closed mouth yeah. does not yeah. eat. And Andrea, you are speaking out and advocating in ways that, I mean, I'm just so happy that you came on here today because there's so many people listening that probably... You know, and, and here's the thing, disability can happen to you at any point. You may not realize, like my friend Keith Robinson had a stroke and he talks about it on stage and he does this great joke about not knowing, he, he, he makes a joke about making fun of someone who's disabled, not realizing he's newly disabled, mm. <laughs> you know, because he's newly disabled right, and yeah. he's going, ah, and he's like, oh, wait, I, <laughs> you know, and I've, because I've watched him talk about someone and I'm like, Keith, do you, are you looking at like, and let me tell you, walking on in the village on 4th Street mm-hmm. by the comedy cellar with him has given me a new vision to how difficult it is to maneuver on busy streets with NYU students who are young and just, whew, they're, you know, and I, I watched him walking and, you know, I've got to, I've got to, I've got to like protect him so that they don't knock him down. Mm. Uh, I've got to like go, just go around. And it's amazing how people are just tunnel vision. They're just, they're not aware of what's in front of them. And they're not concerned either. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm I'm watching him and then I'm, I'm watching another older gentleman behind him who's like, you know, maybe 30 years older than him. And they're walking the same path, you know, because he had a stroke. Mm-hmm. He's matched this gentleman in, pa- in, in um, as far as disability goes, as far as just walking on the sidewalk and getting there safely to your car. I love that he's talking about it and and making, you know, because I think about when Tracy Morgan, after he was, he recovered from that accident, how he talked about things and made people realize, you know, kind of, this is what I went through. This is what is real. And I think comedy is a great way of, of, because it's one of the few places that we are able to sit with things because you guys that make us laugh about the realities of life, you know, that we can also acknowledge the pain and take that medicine with a little bit of sugar, Mm -hmm. you know, um, and be able to deal with it. Because I'm sure that, you know, that, that everybody needs a break with their stuff. And there's some funny stuff that happens in everybody's life, no matter what their abilities are, even if it has something to do with the lack of accommodations or the lack of, of, of respect and things like that. Like there's stuff to be laughed at. And I think that there's power in, you know, people who take, who have gone through it and take to the mic and go, Hey, listen, this is where I'm at. Oh man. There used to be a name, um, uh, Damon Rosier, may he rest in peace. He was a a comedian, BT comedian, uh, in a chair. Um, he passed away about five years ago. Yeah. Yeah. 
yes. a great friend of mine. Laughter is the key to life was his motto. Oh, yes. And we had a joke where in New York City, you know, you take the, the, the buses, right? And we would get on the bus just to go one stop, just to piss off the rest of the New Yorkers. <laughs> because they want to make us upset. So you want to make us upset? We're going to make y'all upset. <laughs> Like, y'all want to be late to work this morning? Let me hold that bus be up like, real quick. Petty police. <laughs> petty police. I love it, girl. Great. Right? So, yeah. I think, please come back, both of you. Yes. Absolutely. Also, congratulations, or I don't know, new mayor, Brandon Johnson of Chicago. Yes. Mm-hmm. I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful. We'll, we'll see what happens. You're always hopeful. Uh, he hasn't been um, installed into office yet. I think that's May 15th. So, um, we'll see. We'll see. I mean, I'm hopeful. Yeah, that's all you can be is hopeful. Because, I mean, you know, like Chicago gets, get, you know, we just get shit on, you know, no matter what we do, you know. <laughs> well, the politics like, you know in Chicago. Saying? Like, it just, it, you know, it doesn't actually matter, <laughs> you know, what the rest of the world thinks about us. But, but we do get raked over the coals. Like everybody was talking about all the stuff that happened downtown this weekend. There's whole shootings in all over the nation in actual schools and nobody talks about the culture of violence in in the country as much as they talk about well chicago like literally if i hear those two words again the minute i hear it i already know hate to leave it there i do <laughs> because i i i mean there's just so much I look at I went through all these topics and I was just like, you just cover it so well coming from your own experience. Thank you, ladies, for being on the show today. Jean, where can our listeners find you? All right. So JeanSparrow.com and that's J-E-A-N-N-E. You can also find me on social at J.M. Sparrow. And that's M as in Marie. And with friends like us, you will always have hope because someone is standing in your corner and sees you. Oh, that is... How am I supposed to go after that? (laughs) (laughs) She did that. Yeah. I'm like... I'm sorry, Andrea. You got this. You got it, girl. You got it. So, Andrea, where could our listeners find you? You can find me on all social media at The Seated Nurse. It's the T-H-E Seated S-E-A-T-E-D Nurse N-U-R-S-E uh, and the SeatedNurse.com as well and friends like us you understand that your yes is way more powerful than anyone else's no Whoa! <laughs> so Marina Franklin here um, you can find me at MarinaFranklin.com for all my dates and where I'm performing and with friends like us You can have two incredible guests on the show to exemplify what validating and what advocating for and empathizing for patients really is. So thank you. Check Check us us out. out. Check us out. 